Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 364. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 364 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, and multi-instrumentalist Chris Collier, who has worked with a number of people, including Lynch Mob, Metal Church, Whitesnake, Corn, Carmen of Peace, and Pat Travers, and many, many others. He comes to us as a guest recommendation from our good friend and former WCA guest Alex Crescioni. So thank you for that, Alex. And we have a good conversation from his home studio based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. So Chris Collier coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about remembering the bigger picture. You all know how myopic we all can get when it comes to audio. Just like any other industry, we've got YouTube channels and podcasts and books and magazines and just an endless supply of all of us talking in circles about audio. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Believe me, I'm, I'm right there with you. I enjoy talking about the minutia of audio just as much as the next person. It's fun, you know, whether we're talking about the, the working class audio aspect of it as I present or whether we're talking about the gear aspect of it. The whole thing is very enjoyable. But I think it's important to remember the bigger picture of what it is we're doing and for the people that we're doing it for. If you're on the music side, take some time to just listen to some music and appreciate the music for the music's sake. Not for how the kick drum sounds, not for how the vocal sounds, not for the lushness of the reverb, but just for the emotion of it, for the, um, for the enjoyment of it. Listen to some music, spend some time diving deep into the craft that is songwriting and how it makes you feel, right? Put on your favorite record, stream whatever you're going to stream. I don't care if it's vinyl, streaming, or whatever. Just, just do it. If you're on the movie side, take some time to watch some movies. Stream them, go to the theater, pull out an old VHS. Hell, I don't care. Just do it. Just watch movies. And on the gaming side, I know I don't have to tell the gamers out there, play some games, right? If you are doing audio for games, play some games, obviously ones you haven't worked on. And then remember, what is it that we're doing? What is our role in that? I know many of us get a little bit lost sometimes and we think that we're the end all be all, right? But remember, if it weren't for the people creating these things, games, movies, music, then our jobs would be non-existent, right? So what I'm saying is, it's just important to recognize the craft of the things that we are helping to support. And I'm not trying to belittle our role by any stretch, no way, because we are important. Sound is important. You all know that, I know that. I think sometimes we get a little bit lost in our own thing. I think to gain some perspective, we need to spend some time enjoying the things that are a direct result of our efforts. Now, obviously, video games and 
movies encompass a lot of different people from the visual side and the sound side when it, when you compare it to music. And when we do these things, I think we gain a better perspective on what it is we're, we're doing, how we can do it better, and recognizing the things that are important, the message, the emotion, the intention of the original songwriter, director, actor, whoever it is. And by doing that, it helps kind of recenter us from our perspective as audio professionals so we can help them achieve the delivery of the message. Forget about the, the technical details. Forget about all the stuff that we like to obsess about. Take some time to appreciate what is the final outcome. What is the final thing that catches our attention? And I think by doing so, we become better audio professionals. I hope that resonates with you. And if it doesn't, well, go watch some movies. Go listen to some music. Go play some games and <laughs> come back. <laughs> all right, that's it for me. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So 
head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Chris Collier here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. We have to thank our mutual friend, Alex Crescioni, for introducing us and for hipping me to you and the work that you do. You're a big influence on him from what he said. And I love Alex. I think he's he's great and I think he's doing great work. So to have the person on who he really admires and turns to, I think is a great treat for for everybody. Yeah, that's that's really nice of him. I've known Alex for a long time. We've been mutual guys in this game, you know, musicians slash engineers playing in bands. He still plays in a band. Same with me. I started as a musician and got into this. So yeah, like I said, we've been friends a long time and he's a really, really good dude. We, we love bouncing ideas off each other. So yeah. Well, so let's start early on. Where did you grow up? I grew up mostly in California. Mm. Uh, I was born in St. Louis. I was there till about five years old and then uh, moved to California. And I've been here since 88, I think. I think that's the year. Oh, or wow. I've been in California since 88. Right. Now I'm in Vegas. Okay. So. Was it San Clemente that you you lived in? I lived in Santa Clarita. Santa, okay. Like the TV show, Santa Clarita Diet. But back then, <laughs> when you told people you lived in Santa Clarita, you go, they go, huh? You go, Magic Mountain, Six Flags. Right. They go, oh, right. okay. Yeah, I've been there before. Exactly. What was your upbringing like? in regards to what role did music play in that upbringing? Well, my father is a musician. He was did all the, the 70s and 80s stuff. He had a cover slash original band that he played in for years back in the Midwest. Hmm. And um, my mom and my dad were divorced when I was very young, when I was about a year or two old. But I would go visit my dad in Kansas. They lived in Salina, Kansas. My mom lived in St. Louis. So I would travel back and forth. And then sometimes I would go with my dad to gigs. He'd take me to the clubs. <laughs> wow. I, I have pictures of me sitting on stage with air drumming drumsticks. And there was even a time at about five years old where I got up on stage and played We Will Rock You <laughs> in front of about a thousand people. <laughs> so if it were my first gig, my first time playing was probably then if you want to count that. But but yeah, that's where it comes from. My dad is a huge influence on me. He's a guitar singer and songwriter, you know, and even when we moved to California, when my parents made the decision that I should go live with my dad and my dad moved to California, he always had a recording studio in the house. Wow. And he was always utilizing it, always using it. And I could never really go in there by myself. He had to be there, you know, and under supervision. But over the years, I gathered, I got his trust and was able to start using the gear a little more. And so it was always there. So that's where it actually comes from, is really my father having it around. And and then what the great thing was, is he never forced me into lessons. He never forced me into doing that. It just sort of came naturally. And, you know, he yeah. was he was a big advocate of never forcing anything on me. Like I was, I was a huge sports guy. Like I played a lot of basketball when I was younger. So, and he, you know, he was supporting me in any, anything I did. But when I finally made a decision that I was going to make music my life, even though I had been playing instruments off and on throughout the years, when I made the decision, he was all for it. So that's where it comes from. When it came to recording and music, did he ever like actively do anything to try to 
we'll just say recruit you or influence you into that decision? Or was it just like, oh, this is what I do. If you're interested, great. If not, whatever. Yeah. I mean, the latter. Okay. I would actually make these guitars out of like a stick. And then I'd take the little grinding trucks on the side of a sk- oh, the old skateboards. I would take that and use that as a whammy bar. I'd cut a big cardboard cutout of the actual body and the headstock. And I would air guitar with my dad all the time while he was playing or recording. And I would put the headphones on and he'd sit there. And then finally one day he's like, here, why don't you, here's one of my guitars. Just play it. Learn to play it. Get your fingers accustomed to playing chords. And here's a couple chords. And he showed me Walk, Don't Run. Say, this will get your hands accustomed to playing the guitar. So that's how it started because he saw I was interested in it. So he he gradually just brought me into it. If he saw I wasn't interested, then he wouldn't. I don't think he wouldn't have done anything. So Yeah, I always weigh that with my own kids. I'm always like, hmm. If I want them to get involved, is it just the reverse psychology? Do I just not acknowledge it? Or It's a tough thing because in my own head, I can, if I can remember from back then, in my own head, I was thinking, well, I love music. I love playing. I'm playing drums all the time. I'm playing guitar all the time. But I'm also doing other activities with my friends at school, playing basketball or whatnot. So I had both on my mind, mm-hmm. even when it, when it was obviously in front of me all the time. Like literally, the, like when we lived in apartments, you walked in the house, the studio is in the living room, and then there's the TV and the couch. So it's all there, all the time. And, and, and when we got to a house, he finally put it in a bedroom, away from me. But still, I would just say, I mean, as far as my experience, I just fell into it naturally. Yeah. It just uh, eventually, life just told me, okay, you're going to play music. And I wonder if... What age were you at at that moment when you and your dad started connecting over that, connecting over music and recording? I would say it was literally like five, six years old. Yeah. You know, when I told you I played We Will Rock You in front of a thousand people, there was also a time when he had a recording studio in the basement in Kansas, and I would go down there, and he recorded me playing drums at five years old, like playing a bunch of different songs, different beats. He recorded me singing one of his original songs. So that's kind of when it all like came together. And then sparsely throughout the years, yeah. actually when, I, when the decision was made for me to go live with my dad, then over the years, it just kind of like grew and grew and grew. But again, at the same time, I never forced it. Yeah. And I wonder if that, you know, there's something special when a kid and a parent can bond over a common love of something. Yeah. I find that one of my youngest kids and I both are into photography as a hobby and it's something we bond over. So I can only imagine that now as an adult, looking back on all of that, it really cemented something emotionally strong in you early on that carries through to this day. Absolutely. hundred percent. So did playing music come first or did recording come first as an interest? Playing music. Well, drums came naturally to me first. I was a drummer first, for sure. Off and on until that was drums. And then when my dad handed me a guitar, it was off and on guitar. I didn't really take to the guitar right away, but eventually I did. And uh, it was more about the drums. But yeah, I came into performing music first, writing music first, joining bands, get my feet wet. Once my dad saw that I actually had the talent and the natural with no lessons, no nothing, just had the natural talent. He's like, okay, 
here's the reality. You don't really need to go to college. I just want you to graduate high school, pass high school, and then you get in every single band that you can, every single thing that you can do. Enter all the drum contests, do everything. Get your name out there. Let people know who you are because you seriously have time. My dad's one of those objective people. He's always tells me, you know, if I didn't think you had the talent, I would have told you not to quit your day job. So he's just one of those very honest and objective fathers that pointed the way for me once he saw that I was actually taking to it and I was a natural at it. But yeah, I mean, it was all about performing and playing in bands at the time, even though off and on, as I said before, I was getting to know my dad's studio, start to EQing me to the point where I brought one of my bands that was playing in to the house to record drums and do the whole like EP. I can remember everything going on there to this day. But yeah, it was performing first and learning all the instruments and playing all the instruments, rock instruments, that is. Right. And did the recording thing just slowly start to take over for you as a higher priority or do they still hold equal weight for you? It started to take a priority. I can remember specifically, there was a point where I was playing in a pretty good band at the time where we were trying to get some interest, you know, doing the whole showcase and finding a producer, do a production deal and all this. We were rehearsing at this place called Crystal, Crystal Sound Studio back in Canyon Country when I was living in Santa Clarita. And across the way, we saw this construction going on and we went over there to look and it has happened to be another rehearsal studio being built in an industrial center. But they also were building a recording studio. So we said, okay, this place is a little nicer. We're going to go over here and try it out. And then one of the owners that owned the studio and ran the studio side of it was listening to our band and took us under his wing. You know, he wanted to be a part of whatever we were doing, he wanted to be our live sound guy, he wanted to be recording all this, the studio stuff, he wanted to do all this stuff. So that, at that moment in time, when we were starting to make that relationship with that particular studio and those particular people, that's when it's, the wheels started to change for me. Because when we were recording at that time, I was very interested in that process. For all of a sudden, mm -hmm. I was like, the light bulb went off and said, I really like being here. That's when the change started. The tilt started to happen. So, <laughs> And did you feel any kind of like, I don't know, it's a bit of, I don't want to say an identity crisis, but I remember that moment of which I was like, in my head, I declared, wow, I actually enjoy this more than I like touring, playing, and all this other business. Oh my gosh, my life's changing into this. Is that okay with me? And I was at peace with it, but... Did you go through any little mini crisis like that? Or was it a smooth transition? Many, <laughs> many. It's one of the reasons I decided to move out of California so that I could finally 100% concentrate on this. There were many times where when I was doing it, going between the two, okay, I got to do a session today, but then I got to go home and load my truck and put my drums in the car and go play a, a bar gig nine to one. I got to do that. And then I got to come home at like two in the morning and then wake up again and go do another session, you know, going back and forth years and years and years of doing that. I actually did a tour stint with Lynch Mob playing drums between May 2012 and September 2012. And that particular moment sealed the deal for me saying, I'm not built for this. I'm not built for touring. I'm not built for going on the road, all the travel, even though it was pretty like, I wouldn't say luxury travel, but there were points where we were traveling on like a private plane because George Lynch just happened to know someone that owned the private plane and was a huge fan. 
and it wanted the car to surround his private plane. So I was like, cool. I skipped a few steps. I didn't have to go on the big bus and go travel across the state. We just were traveling in a plane or, you know, just doing flyaways on a regular airline, you know, here and there. And it's like when we were doing those at that moment in time, at that last gig, I'll never forget it. It was September, I think, September 15th, 2012 at the Lincoln Theater in South Carolina or North Carolina. I forget which one it was. That was when, and when I came home from that, I go, yeah, that ain't for me. <laughs> and why do you think that is? Is it the lifestyle of a touring musician or is it the hauling of drums? Because I'm a drummer too. And I, I just grew tired of carrying drums around. That, <laughs> that's one of them. I guess it's just the traveling thing. I'm not a traveler. Like yeah. my lady wants to go to Europe eventually one day. She wants to go to Italy. She wants to go everywhere. I'm like, you can go. Like that's that's my attitude on it. It's like, I've been to Europe. I did Sweden rock. I was like, okay, I don't know if I want to do this, man. <laughs> I'm a real homebody and oh, yeah. I'm really dedicated. And it was all those years of just teetering back and forth where I was just like, eventually I have to make a decision and not do one thing. Now, don't get me wrong. If I was asked to like play drums on a session that I'm recording, mm-hmm. 100%, I'll put my drums in the car. Even if someone else is playing my drums, they're coming from out of town, they got to use my drum kit, and we got to go to a studio and record. Absolutely. I'm going to load my drums. We're going to use my kit. I'm familiar with it. And if I got to play on it, I'm cool. As long as it's not a consistent thing, Yeah. like night after night after night, I'm cool with it. I totally know? identify. That's that's interesting. <laughs> After that gig, I assume that leading even up to the the Lynch Mob gig, were you doing sessions that were we'll consider pro level sessions? Because I think your discography precedes all that. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Lynch Mob was. It led from working with George Lynch personally, then working with his Shadow Train project, then to working with Lynch Mob, then to him asking me, "Hey, we don't have a drummer for this tour. Can you come out?" That kind of thing, and then then it all led from there. Getting into the recording side of things, what do you think it is about recording that drives you to that? That you like to spend time in studios and be around it? And I assume that part of that is the early influence of your dad, but what else is happening there that drives you to it? To me, the first thing that comes to mind is one of the main reasons I got into it was because when I mentioned before, when we were going to that studio and we were recording with, we'll say his name, his name was Rick Altshuler. He's since passed away in 2004. But when we were doing that and the page was starting to turn for me, his recordings were good. But I always would sit there and wonder, well, I want the kick drum to be punchier, but I don't want to go and touch anything. Well, I want, you know, the guitars aren't sitting right or the mix just sums up with the mix. You know, I'd want to go there and do it myself, but it was not the right etiquette, right? And then we would start to meet these producers that would take our stuff and record it. They'd bring us to studios. Well, I remember one session that was at the Steakhouse in North Hollywood, which I actually love, and I record a lot of stuff there. We rented a drum kit from Drum Doctors, and they brought the Black Album Gretsch kit with the Black Album snare drum. I'm like, I'll never forget this. This is great. It's all great. And you're getting all hyped up, and then when you get the mixes back, you go, oh, yeah, that's not what I expected. What happened? That would always be in the back of my mind. We went through this like three or four times with three or four different producers to the point where I said, I'm sick of this. I need to get my hands on this because I'm just not hearing what I want to hear. It could be better. It always could be better. So maybe it was a selfish thing. (laughs) I -hmm. don't know. But that drove me a lot more to want to get into that. 
So it was all those experiences and tests with these different producers and listening to our music in another way. I'm not saying it was bad. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't right. And I guess at some point, I just took it upon myself to be like, you know what, Rick, can I get in here and just mess around a little bit? He eventually let me have a little more freedom in the studio over time, kind of like an automatic internship, if you will. Yeah. To the point where I was, and then over time, I was, I'd had friends say, hey, you work at that studio, right? We just want to do a song. Can you record a song for us? I go, okay, you know, and then it goes from there, it goes from there. Another thing was I got to the point with, with my band where I was like, you know what? I want to write my own music. I can play all the instruments. I want to see how that goes. So that's another thing I did. <laughs> I go through, I run the click track, play the song. I'd listen to it. Okay, I'm good. I plug up the guitar, start playing the guitar parts. And I start doing all the stuff myself just so I can get used to what's going on here in the studio, how the signal flow's happening. Trial and error. I had no one, like Rick would come in and show me now and then. He's like, this is how this goes, this is how this goes. Here's the patch bay, here's the route. Cool. And I just experimented. I was so lucky to have someone like that trust me with all that stuff without blowing too many things up, I guess. We didn't really blow anything up, but hit a mic too hot or a preamp too hot or whatever, you know. But I learned the hard way, basically. So that was a huge thing, was just... Getting in and doing it. Yeah, just doing it and trying to get what I heard in my head out to the speakers. And Rick obviously was a bit of a mentor, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. He, He was there during the page turn, and he was a big part of it. Just let me do that stuff. Who else would do that? Right. Not a prof- no professional studio would just let some intern come run amok without knowing how, how the shit worked, you know? And were there others that you were turning to for advice or, or guidance in the studio? What's funny about that is, if I'm to backtrack, the studio didn't have a Pro Tools rig. It was a Mackie Mix 24 rig, I think, and a Spec 72-channel console. But then... They had an investor get a Pro Tools rig and put it in one of the ISO booths. Dude, it was like $75,000 at the time. And that's when Pro Tools 6 came out with TDM and all that. And they've had that whole entire rig in there. So what would happen is they bought the rig, but no one knows how to use it. (laughs) So they had to hire some people, engineers, to come in and show them how to use the rig. And I would pop my head in there from time to time, and I would soak in what's going on. And... Over the time, I'd be all, why is no one in there using this? And then more and more people would come in, well, we need to learn more about the rig. And I'm like, here comes my attitude again going, I got to get in here and just, come on. No one's firing it up. It's sitting here dormant. No one's using it. I want to get on this thing. So when I would start to get on that, they would have more people come in and have one engineer. I remember Mike Ging, he was one guy that came in and showed us a lot of stuff. Hmm. So I would take a lot of notes from him. There was a couple other engineers that came in. Oh, you can do this. Here's these shortcuts for this. Here's that for that. It had a bunch of different guys just come in. And that was kind of like another guy, you know, influencing me or showing me the ropes on certain things. But not because I went to them. It's because they were just coming in trying to show the staff how to run the rig. Eventually, I was the only one to take into it right away. So it was the engineers coming in, showing us a little here, a little there. And um, that was pretty huge for me. I can remember that. And having those light bulb moments in Pro Tools going, oh, okay, so that's an easier way to do this. Oh, that's a way to do this. That's a way to do that. Yeah. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Did you take to Pro Tools right away? Were you interested or were you skeptical? 100% interested. Yeah. Because it was difficult to get things on that console, even, you know, mixing on my dad's place, which was 100% analog. That was 16 channel, half inch, reel to reel. So dealing with tape, I had to do the locate buttons, the punch ins, all the stuff there at my dad's place. And then it got a little easier with the Mackie Mix 24 rig. But then again, I wasn't doing major editing. We were, the console was the big part. We were mixing on the console. We we're doing all this stuff on there. But then when Pro Tools came along, I was like, oh, it's all in the computer. And the, oh, there's an amp sim. Oh, there's amp farm. There's these delays. There's these choruses everywhere and compressors. I could put as many as I want anywhere I want with as many tracks as I want. Mm-hmm. So I was like, instant, loved it. Instantly loved it and took to it right away. So I was I was a big time sponge when Pro Tools came out. It makes me think back, like in I guess it was '90s when ADATs and Mackie boards were very prevalent, and I thought I got to get my own rig. And I thought, should I buy one of these ADATs and a Mackie board? Or oh, there's this thing Pro Tools. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this might go somewhere. I should get into this. Yeah. And yep. I just think, wow, what would have been different for me or how much longer it would have been before I got into it had I not got into it then. But so what were the big takeaways for you out of that facility about people or business or techniques? I would say everything. All you just mentioned. I mean, I know it's very vague, yeah. but when I was learning and recording bands and doing all the trial and error on my own, they were in my court and willing to work with me. And that's when I say, hey, can I get a little money for this? I did a few things for free, obviously, yeah. because I didn't know. You know, I was working a daytime job and then coming to the studio at night and recording and then go back to the daytime at the nine to five. And then eventually there was a producer that came in and he brought a band, not a band, but an artist. He brought Pat Travers 
and Carmen Apice. Oh. And they did a record together. It's called It Takes a Lot of Balls. I engineered some stuff on that record, but I was very green. Like to the point where I didn't know how to export files in Pro Tools. I didn't know all the those ins and outs. I just knew how to get signal in and listen to it and maybe print a mix. I knew how to do that just over the time having the rig. But then the files needed to be exported and they need to go to Pat Regan to mix. And it was like, oh man, I don't know how to do this. I'm screwing everything up. And and that's a part of the trial and error, I guess, and sort of what was happening at the time. So I learned some hard lessons during that session. Did you get yelled at by Carmen Apice? I got yelled at by the producer. Oh. I didn't get yelled at by the the boys. No, okay. they were awesome. Pat Travers was amazing. Carmen was great. I think Carmen, since he knew I was a drummer, we shared that kind of drummer bond. Yeah. Right? So, and he was really cool. At, I, that's all I remember. I just, and the producer was cool. I'm glad he gave me the opportunities that he did, but it was like at the same time I was getting yelled at because tracks were distorting because I didn't know how to export. Then they had to finally hire a guy to come in and go, okay. This is how you export. And he kind of half didn't know how to do it, but he figured it out. And then on the business side of it, it's like learning how to deal with bands and what's the right rate to charge. I didn't know. It's just like, what do I charge you guys? Like like hundred bucks? Or I I didn't know. I had no idea. But in the course of dealing with more and more bands and artists, it was like, okay, I'm kind of getting a hang of this. And then talking to other engineers and producers throughout the, my time there was like, okay. I think I think I get it now. So I can start setting a, a rate hmm. and that and then just go from there. And my father's a really good businessman. So he was along the way he was kind of coaching me. He's like, You need to charge what you're worth. You need to know what you're worth. And if these bands are coming to you because they like the way you're doing stuff, you need to charge accordingly. And I'm like, Okay. So there were some things I overcharged on accident, there's some things I undercharged on accident. Obviously, lessons learned throughout that whole time. But I learned a little bit of everything that entire time I was there. It was just such a pivotal time in learning all of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's you're transitioning out of being a player into being an engineer and all the stuff you have to learn. And it's kind of a new set of protocols and, and etiquette and business as opposed to being how it is being a drummer. After that studio, where did that take you? Where did you go from there? Well, the studio disbanded and decided to move to another facility in which his son, Rick's son, Robbie, took over. I mean, he was already, he was a part of the studio there as well, the original studio. It's just his father passing away. He had a hard time and I, I really felt for him at the time. And, and then they decided to move the facility into another part of um, the city there on the other side of town. He, I think Robbie wanted to take over mm -hmm. a little bit more and I'm like, that's cool. And so I just kind of sort of weaned myself out of that situation. And that was the time when I was like, okay, I think I might be able to start doing some stuff at home. So I did a few projects. At that time, I remember lots of lulls, lots mm. of down points to the point where I was like, I can't make a living at this anymore. I'm going to have to find another real job. Because there was a point where I was sustaining a living at it. But you know this business. Oh, it's yeah. a roller coaster. <laughs> so... It was like this. It would get, we go up and then we go, whew, yeah, like immediate crash. If there was any straighter of a line going down, <laughs> that was me. It was an interesting time after that studio trying to transition into doing more stuff at home. I, I remember at that time I was like struggling to find a place if, if a band wanted to do drums 
I didn't really have a facility. I mean, I could go back to the old place, but I was kind of feeling like I kind of want to push that away. I want let me find somewhere else to go. Yeah. And then I, I met a guy through the guitar player I was playing with in the cover band. He said, I know this guy, he's building a studio. He could really use your help. You know about the stuff. Or I'm like, yeah, cool. I go up to there and he's got all this stuff. And turns out he works at a pawn shop. So he gets all this gear, all these mics. I go in there, I go, dude, look at that amp. Look at, the, look at all these guitars. How did you get this computer? He's like, oh, the pawn shop, man. People pawn stuff all the time. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, there's a lot of potential up here. And he, at the time he was a bachelor. Yeah. So he basically was going to turn some of his house into a studio and he just needed someone to help him put it together. So I offered my services and went up there and helped him out. His name is Jason Landis. I love that dude to this day. Eventually he's like, well, if you know of any bands that want to record and use the studio, you're more than welcome to use it. I'm like, really? Now, great. I found a place, right? Right. The problem was it was in a place called Green Valley slash Lake Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And there was this road called San Francisco Canyon. It's a one lane road twisting through the mountains for like a half an hour. Uh, I'm already <laughs> getting motion sickness. Oh, dude, going like, like 7,000 feet elevation. So it's like, and then at the very end, right before his house, you start going downhill, twisting. And then his driveway is a gravel driveway going right up to the house. Big house mind you. But the trek to get there is a little daunting. So it was a kind of a turnoff for some of the bands I brought up there. Yeah, They're like, where do we get food? It's like, the nearest food is like 45 minutes away. What do we do? And we got to go back pizza? down the crazy hill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was dealing with that for a while. And some guys liked it. They liked the getaway and all that. But it was a little hard to get people up to that facility. Although I did find a place, the price was reasonable. I was able to make some money on the top of it, so I wasn't paying too much out of pocket for studio time, you know? Mm. So it was a really cool situation. If you're chronologically looking at, if I'm thinking about it now, looking at how things happen for me as far as studio and price and all that stuff, it's pretty lucky. I got pretty lucky. I, got, I fell into some spots at the right place at the right time throughout my career here just to at least get by and make a little bit of money, as little bit of money as I could or as much money as I could. And it's crazy. But, you know, just as I hear it objectively, and I and I think back to what your dad said about, okay, you're going to do this. You need to go and get in all these bands and try it and all these things. Your dad early on basically gave you the key advice. And the key advice being, you got to put yourself out there. And as you explained it, you you fell into these situations. But in reality, from my point of view, you put yourself in those situations and made yourself available. Yeah. Seeking out this stuff. And that's that's been a, a reoccurring theme that I've been hearing a lot lately from various people. Just a reminder that the phone's not going to magically ring. You have to inject yourself into these situations and let people know, I can help. I can do this if you need my assistance. And when you do that, people are like, oh, shit. Yeah, come on over right now. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I think in those early years, I subconsciously... I was doing it because I fell in love with it. And it was just a natural thing. The transitioning point where I was like, wow, this, this is great. I'm not getting tired of doing this. I'm getting tired of dealing with four other dudes in a band. I'm getting tired of loading my equipment into a car to go play a gig for two people. I'm getting sick of this. But on the other hand, in the studio, I'm like, this is great. So maybe on a subconscious level early on, I was putting myself in the positions. 
You just said something that, that triggered something in me dealing with other people in a band. Was part of this related to you taking control over your own destiny? Yes. I would say that's probably another main part of it. God. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities between us that I, that I feel the same way. It's like, you know, you deal with people in bands and then decisions get made with management or other band members. And then you're like, you know, of course, drummers <laughs> get the short end of the stick sometimes. And doing what, what we do, it seems like you too chose the path of, well, I'm going to control my path. I'm going to control how I get paid, when I get paid, how much I get paid. And the tasks that I do, there's there's a lot of that that I'm sensing from what you're saying. Yeah, there was actually a point I didn't point out in the timeline where I actually, that particular band I've always been talking about, when I quit that band, I wanted to do my own band. I wanted to play guitar and sing in front of my own band. And that's when my uncle, Bill Byers, who has been working in the music industry since I was a kid, he's a broker for Vintage Audio Gear. And he was trying to start a record label. And he teamed up with an engineer named Dave Allert. And when they started the record label, they were looking for artists. And my uncle was like, hey, you got some good tunes here. Let's get you in with Dave and let's, let's try to do something. Let's record an EP or do something. So I actually started my own band and did that and did the Dave Grohl thing. I went in the studio. And it's funny because we didn't do this in Pro Tools at all. This was on Dat Tape. He had an API console. We worked at Peter Aykroyd's house, right up the top. If you saw where the old coconut teas used to be, mm -hmm. right behind there, the street, there was this big white house up there. That was Peter Aykroyd's house. And Dave would come in and he put his studio in there, put a whole bunch of recording gear and all this stuff. And Peter actually had some recording gear in there too. So I would go there and record all my stuff. I'd record all the drums to that tape, there's no punching in. I had to play everything perfect. Guitars the same way, bass the same way. Vocals, I had to sing everything, no copy pasting, like all that stuff. So, but to that tape, to not to two channel, or was it was it DA eighty eight or DA eighty eight? I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah DA eighty eight. Okay. My my bad. Okay, um, recorded it all to DA eighty eight. Yeah, so that was part of me trying to take over an instance of me going, okay, I'm gonna have control over this. This is mine. I don't have to deal with anybody else. That was the next step I was trying to do. If I'm going to do this as a career and keep going, this might be my last hurrah Yeah, as a musician and try to make it as a band. And unfortunately, due to certain circumstances, it didn't work out. I ended up re-recording the entire album myself at that studio. I went back to my, I'll call it my home base. Right. Went back to that studio, re-recorded everything myself. And I just went from there. Again, I don't know if it's a selfish thing, but no one else could get what I'm hearing in my head out to the speakers, except for me. And that's just the way I thought back then. So that was another test of taking control and doing things myself, even to the point where I went out and I, I hired a bunch of my, my buddies. We went out and played gigs for like a year and a half. They learned all the tunes. We played gigs and had some fun. But again, that was another thing where I was like, you know what? I'm glad I tried it, but this is not for me. And this was back, shit, this was back 2008, 2009, about that era. So all that was happening at the same time as kind of the lulls were going down in the recording side of things. But yeah, that was another test for me, for sure. Tell me about 
the decision to move to Las Vegas or, or move to Nevada and leave California? I don't want to say it's political or anything, but at the same time, there was just things happening in California that I just saw was going in a direction that I wasn't liking. I mean, there was also, you know, I made my life there. Yeah. Everywhere I went, lives. at least, you know, everyone's like, oh, hey, I've seen you here. I've seen you there. Or you run into people you don't like or you had bad run-ins with or bad business with or I just didn't want to see those people anymore. And he's just certain people and when playing gigs. I was playing in a cover band with my buddy Robbie Duran. We played together for, I think, almost 18 years. We did covers. We did the four-hour cover gigs, private parties, you name it. The no rehearsal band. Oh, yeah. But then, like, all that stuff, that was performing. That was loading my drums into a car and then driving two hours to go play this gig for 200 bucks or here for 100 bucks. And, you know, <sighs> just over the years, I just, all those things started to add up. It's not Robbie's fault. It's not anyone else's fault. It has nothing to do with that. It's just me and my own personal things being like, this town is getting crowded. I'm sick of the traffic. I'm sick of the things happening here. I still want to deal with it. It's just time for a change. You know, yeah. sometimes you just got to make a change. and You got to disrupt your life a little bit just to force yourself to get somewhere else and be comfortable and live. My whole thing is being as stress-free as possible. But as stressful as this industry is, I got to be in a spot where I'm as stress-free as possible. Yeah. Well, cost of living in, in Nevada is a huge bonus. Lack of income tax, I think, is also a bonus, right? Yeah. yeah state tax, yeah. Or state tax, yeah. And the cost of living, for sure, yeah. I mean, that played a factor, but there's way too many other factors that also say I, it was either here or Nashville. But I chose here because her family was all in California. Yeah. My parents at the time were in California, so it just worked out. And I just ended up still having to go back and forth between California working with different artists, especially corn, which are in Bakersfield. So it worked out that way. Yeah, good. Still a good distance from some key points, Bakersfield for corn reasons, but also Los Angeles. I mean, I talked to Kevin Churko about the same thing where he was living in Vegas and going to work with Ozzy, you know. Oh, and they wow. Did, and I think for a period of time, they didn't even realize he was living in Vegas. He was making the drive and very similar situation there, crisscrossing back and forth between Nevada and California. Yeah. It's not, it's not a bad drive. It's easy. It's really easy. You got to watch Halloran Summit in, in the wintertime for snow, but big deal, you know? Yeah. Tell me about coming to Vegas and how do you feel Vegas has worked out for you as a recording professional? It's great. Like I mentioned, a lot more stress-free. I mean, a, a majority of my, my roster are people that I work with, you know, I can do remotely or they actually drive or fly out here. So it ends up working out. It worked out great. I mean, I lost a couple people. But that's natural. I knew I would. But a majority of the stuff I actually do is mixing and mastering. And I don't have to physically be in, in a certain place to do that. Yeah. My rig is completely equipped with everything I need for that. So it was just beneficial in that way. As of now, we've been here since 2019. And I don't think I'm going anywhere else. Yeah. This is home now. What about the heat? I mean, it definitely can get a little toasty. Yeah. It's a dry <laughs> heat. It's a dry heat. Well, I grew up in southern New Mexico. I know all about the dry heat. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I think the only thing that has a hard time adjusting is my sinuses. The dryness kind of gets to me sometimes. But yeah. other than that, I mean, the heat's not too bad if you're in the shade, especially yeah. in the dry heat. It's better not being in Missouri or Florida and then 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, or the humidity even Nashville. Of, of those places. Yeah. So you're mixing and you're mastering, but you still do get out and do stuff outside because I've I've seen your Instagram posts of you working with Mick Mars in Nashville. Yeah. That was a treat and a half. I gotta say, that was some of the coolest experiences I've had. Simply because Mick is such a sweetheart. He's so hospitable. Like he welcomed me into his home, into a studio. And I mean, we worked, I mean, we worked a long time, but uh, that was just an amazing opportunity. I have to really thank Joel Holkstra and Ray Luzier for that because Ray actually is playing on his album. Mm -hmm. So, and obviously, you know, Ray is in corn. So that connection made itself. He's like, dude, you need to get Collier to, you know, help you here. And then to the point where it was like, I think Mick wants to fly you out to Nashville. I'm like, wow, that'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yes. I'm here, I'm driving up in a rental car, looking at his house going, wow. (laughs) That's what Molly Crew money buys. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's a sweetheart. He's an amazing dude. And he gets a bad rap, but there's a reason he was the way he was or how he's portrayed. It's I don't really get into it because that's his own personal thing, but he's just one of the best dudes I know. Absolutely. I'm unaware of how he's portrayed, I guess. Yeah, it's just with the band members. You know how they always, the fighting always going on. Oh, and my God. Yeah. Let's just say he always gets the shit end of the stick, and it's unfortunate. Huh. Yeah. But you had a great time, and what was your takeaway from that experience? The biggest takeaway from that is that Mick Mars is a person yep. just like anybody else. And when you get him in, in a vulnerable state, just man to man, when it's just me and him, he's just another dude. Yeah. I don't care who it is. All these guys, there's a humbling quality to them. There's that sense. And if, you, if you're not a fanboy, you're not sitting there talking about it all the time, and you're just having cool conversations and just about life or whatever, that's all they want. They're people just like you and me, or just like Joe Schmo on the street. He just happened to hit success and did well. So that's the biggest takeaway. That was the ultimate. Even when I'm hanging out with the corn dudes, it's the same way. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like... They're just guys. They're goofy guys and fun to be around. But the Mick Mars, like when I hung out with Mick Mars for two weeks, just me and him working on his record, it was just like, they're just people, man. doesn't matter who you meet. You know, there's very few times where I feel like I can get starstruck. And um, unfortunately, a couple of those people are dead. But yeah, that's the biggest takeaway for me, to be honest. These situations you found yourself in with with Mick or Korn, I assume, going back to our previous conversation about interjecting yourself and and being available, some up-and-comers might say, well, how do you get those gigs? So that's what I would ask you when we ask, how do you get those gigs? Is it the same thing? Is it just making yourself available for everybody all the time and eventually word gets around? Yeah, it's, I just joke with people about this when people come, man, you're busy, dude. I go, yep, I don't say no. (laughs) I say yes to everything. I still do. Yeah. I still do. If I'm going to chronologically quickly name drop and put everything into perspective and how I got here, it would be, I met George Lynch through a friend of mine named Neil Romer, Mm -hmm. who is in a band himself, and I still work with. George got me into Lynch Mob, played with Lynch Mob. George started a band called KXM with Doug Pinnock and Ray Luzier. Through Ray Luzier, I met Fieldy. I ended up working on Fieldy's side project band, Stillwell. Head and Monkey got wind of that, said, hey, 
can you come and help us do some pre-production demos for Serenity of Suffering, which ended up being Serenity of Suffering record? Cool. Did that and got into the corn camp. Ray got me into that. So through all that, I started to accumulate the resume on some things. But KXM, I think, was the catalyst in all that because people heard those mixes and saw my name on those records and go, hey, and I started getting random people just reaching out to me, Flotsam and Jetsam, Metal Church, all this kind of random bands just started reaching out. And so you could go in here, go there, and here and there. And then the, the branches started splitting. So that one line is going up, but then all the branches started splitting into all these other different bands. So those are the people I credit for this, all of it. You heard Ray's name mentioned a lot, and you heard George's name mentioned a lot. Yeah, Those two guys, as of now, are the big reasons why I'm at where I'm at. Almost like a, if you look at it like a tree, they're almost like the, the root. Yep. And then the tree goes out. And I think that that's something that other audio professionals, at least on the music side of things, well, actually in the film or game side of things, I could say too, is that people do projects, but they don't always just do one project. George Lynch, obviously, has done a couple projects. They meet other people. They collaborate with other people. So if you have a good run with one branch of the tree, we'll say, that could branch off into another project, which will branch off into another project. It just keeps going if, if you play your cards right. So on that topic, how do you approach the branches? How do you approach presenting yourself as a person to work with? What do you think the qualities that you bring to the table are that keep the branches moving and growing, so to speak? I guess that depends on the situation and what they want. Mm -hmm. But I think I've developed a reputation, even early on, as having an understanding of all of the instruments. Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. It's like, look, if you have a problem tuning your drums, I can tune your drums. If you have a problem intonating your guitar, I can intonate your guitar. You're having trouble with a vocal line, I can sing it. Here's how it should go. Here's the steps you need to do. Hey, you're not singing correctly. I can tell you how to breathe, how to relax. I can do all these things. All that accumulative knowledge mm -hmm. that I've gathered playing in bands and all that stuff that brought me to this point, I think helps me stand out a little bit and adds a little bit to my credibility and being able to help them on all these levels, not just a button pusher going, do it again. That was pretty good. Oh, okay. So I think I offer those things. And if the bass player can't play the part, hey, give me the bass. I got it. I'll help you out there. I'll help you out here. I'll help you out there. I think all those things that I'm able to do and able to communicate with the band or the artist is a huge, I guess, advantage for me, just being able to do that and have that communication factor. I can tell the drummer, hey, try this fill. You know, I could do that to him. Or I can tell him, like, I tell the guitar player, you know, it's kind of like a ja, 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 ja. It's, it kind of goes like this. Or telling the singer, ah, you know, do this run like this or whatever, you know, I, all those things yeah. I bring to the table. I bring all that experience. So I think that's a beneficial thing for me. That is a beneficial thing for sure. Well, on the, on the business side of things, you know, speaking in a broad manner, what is your financial philosophy of how you operate as an audio professional to survive, to grow, to maintain? I think I touched on this before. It's about just my father always telling me, Make sure that what you're offering is worthwhile to you and you're charging accordingly and you're making sure that the services you, that you provide, you benefit from that. You love music. That's automatic. Right. You don't need to prove to somebody that 
you're good at what you do or you love what you do. They know that. Now it's time to benefit on that. You're doing what you love. Now you need to be smart about it and you need to make sure that you're charging what you're worth. If you can do all of these things and you offer all of these things, you need to make sure that you get the right amount for those things. I know everyone's like, oh, money, you know, it's no big deal. No, the truth of the matter is money helps us all. Faith is not going to pay the rent. Money's going to pay the rent. Money's going to pay the bill. So it's like, I got to think pragmatically about that, you know, and yeah. be like, okay, I got to make sure, hey, if this guy's going to get a mix for, if he's going to pay, a, what, 500 a song or 1,000 a song, you know, I got to make sure because of the workload, I got to see what I'm looking at and I got to charge accordingly because, hey, I got to edit drums on this. So I got to do this. I got to tune this. I got to comp that. I got to do this. I got to make sure it's worthwhile. And I still have a tendency to undercharge sometimes, but I think just realizing your worth, all the time you spend, even the extra time, and I've gone above and beyond for almost every single artist I've worked for. If I charged $500 for a mix, if you add up the time I spent on it, it's probably double that. Right. But I love, you know, I just love it and I just put everything into it. And it shows when the end result comes out. So I think you, you got to see what other people are charging. You know, of course, you got to be competitive and you got to work with the artists. One thing I always talk, tell my artists is look, if you're struggling to pay this amount, let's work something out. It's all good. I'm not going to say this is my price and that's it. I just say, hey, Here's the price. Let's talk about it. Let's work it out. I'm not stern. There are some things where I got to be stern and, you know, you just, that's just nature of the beast. Yeah. But I don't have representation. I have a sort of manager, a friend of mine that helps me out and gets me gigs and stuff. And I love the dude. He's one of my longtime friends, Lucas Joyner. But a majority of this is all done myself. So I'm not, not only am I dealing with the artist and their feelings and about the music, I'm dealing with the finances and the invoices and the this and the contracts. And it's hard. I, I, I've got as many times where I'm like, I got to hire somebody, man. <laughs> I, I just can't. I can't. It's like, I want to think about the music and the creativeness. And then you, you throw money in the mix and people get weird, man. And I understand why. I understand. And some people don't understand it. Why do you charge so much? It's like, well, you're paying for... All the years I spent perfecting a craft, the crafts, playing the drums, learning how drums work, playing the guitar, learning how the guitar works, learning how the vocal works, learning how the bass works, learning how, all this stuff, Pro Tools, all my, my mix and master, my engineering skills, you're paying for all that knowledge that I've accumulated over my entire career. Right. That's why. And if a lot more people realize that, I don't think you know they'd have a problem. I've been blessed. I don't have many people, if not any people, complaining about it. In fact, some people be like, man, you should charge more. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and then in my head going, shit. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not greedy. I just need, I need to know what, I, what I'm worth. Yeah. And this is what I'm worth. And take it or leave it, or we can work something out. And that's it. Sounds great. Sounds fair. Where can people find out more about you? Instagram. I still don't have a website yet. I have the domain, but I don't have the website up yet. Uh, Instagram. Okay. At cmc21productions. I mean, that's where I do a majority of my stuff and check messages and stuff. Like, that's how we... That's how we connected, yeah. Yep, yep. I'm on Facebook too, but Instagram's probably the place. Yeah. Sounds good. You're also on LinkedIn, I discovered. I just sent you a request today. Oh, I'll go check that. I don't want to check that very often. (laughs) Dude, social media to me is like, 
It's hard, man. Like, it's funny because I'm sitting like in, during the corn writing sessions, I was sitting there and Ray's on his phone. No diss to Ray. I'm like, wow, Ray, what are you doing over there? He's like, oh, I'm just posting for Pearl. They asked me to do an Instagram post. I got to do a story. I got to do it real. I got to do this. I'm like, what does that all entail? And he tells me all in detail. And I'm going, <sighs> my brain just doesn't want to think about that. <laughs> I'll yeah. put a post out and it'd be like, all right, I'm doing my best. I'll put a reel out. I'm like, oh, you forgot to tag so-and-so. And then I get a message from somebody. Oh, you've got to tag this. Oh, this sounds like this. I'm like, oh my God, no. Yeah. Sometimes I just don't want to deal with it, but I know it's essential now. And to be honest, I've gotten a lot of work through Facebook and Instagram. People hit me up. So I am thankful for that. That's for damn sure. Yeah. And just a couple of things to wrap up. You're working out of your home. Is that right? Mostly, yes. Mostly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that your preferred place to work when you're mixing at least? Yes. hundred percent. I have a very modest setup, very simple. I've upgraded a few things over the years, but I like to keep it simple just with the way with technology is I don't really go mix on a console or mix or some or anything. I'm doing everything in the box. I'm able to achieve everything I need in Pro Tools and with the gear that I have. And yeah, I love being here at home. Like I said in earlier, I'm a homebody. If I if I could retire doing this and not do anything else, <laughs> I'm good. I know. That, that sounds perfect <laughs> to me. Well, I'm going to include a link in the show notes for your Instagram account and your LinkedIn as well for those that are on LinkedIn. Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate the fact that you took the time to dissect all of this for us. And I think the listeners get a lot out of it. So certainly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, this was, was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Well, you take care. All right, man. Talk to you later. See ya. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Chris Collier here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, remember, guest suggestions. Those go to the guest suggestion form on the workingclassaudio.com website. Head on over there if you have somebody you'd like to recommend. Always open for recommendations because that's how we keep the show running. It's the fuel for the show. So check that out, workingclassaudio.com. That's all for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, man of the hour, the week, the month, the year. Yeah. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 